From 11FS, I'm Ross Gallagher and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you Challenger Banks angry over delays to 775 million RBS funding scheme, M-Pesa looks to Ethiopia for expansion, and Kodak's Bitcoin rigs have had their moment, and Amazon Prime Day's biggest fails. All this and more on today's shows. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Fintech Insider News, brought to you in partnership with Microsoft Azure. We're coming to you live from the 11FS offices in WeWork Aldgate. My name is Ross Gallagher from 11FS and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host David Breer. David, how are you doing? Super good. Another week of walking around London wearing shorts. Like, cannot complain when the weather is so good. It's like uh, the wonderful life, right? What is this alternate reality of good weather in London? Well, do you know, I, it's like good weather, but I'm also like massively suffering from jet lag still. So getting back from the US on Saturday about sort of eight o'clock in the morning and made that like killer thing of having a nap before I actually sort of got to grips. It was, it was like schoolboy error. So now I'm really sort of feeling the pain from it, but, uh, but really good trip. So, but good to be back. Good news. So David and a number of other 11FS superstars have been jetting around the US hitting cities like absolute crazy so um but it's good to have you back david and good to have you on the show good to be back and as you will have realized as ever we are not alone we are joined in the room as usual by some fantastic guests we have eric fullweiler executive director of vayner media how are you doing eric super well Thank you so much for having me. Love it. It's a pleasure to have you. And uh, Tina Baker-Taylor, CMO of CoinFloor. How are you doing, Tina? Hey, Ross. I'm great. Thanks for having me. Excellent. It's great to have you here. So let's push on with the show. Um, Before we start the show, we should say that tickets for our live FinTech Insider After Dark shows in Atlanta are actually still available. We will be doing live shows in both London and Atlanta on the 26th of July. The London leg has already sold out, but if you're in Atlanta, do not miss out. Head to afterdark.11fs.com to book your tickets. It's kind of mean, isn't it? We're basically saying if you wanted to go to the London one, like you're shit out of luck, quite frankly, because all the tickets have gone already. But if you want to fly all the way to Atlanta from London to see it, then all well. It's not entirely unreasonable given... Yeah, if you, like, awesome. are you really a fan? Like, if you are, yeah. and you can make that so yeah. awesome. Yeah, I, think, I mean, just to add that Atlanta T-shirt to your collection, it's if true. nothing else, very right? true. Awesome. Okay, well, look, let's get started with this week's news. And our first story this week comes from the Telegraph, and it is to do with RBS's capability and innovation fund, and the fact that it's been delayed, and that the the sort of challenger banks that are looking to apply for this fund are getting a little bit frustrated. So the fund was set up as part of the UK government's bailout of RBS during the financial crisis. Its main goal is to boost competition in the SME banking market, and several tranches worth a combined $425 million will be handed out, and the idea is that this will finance challenges that want to improve the quality of their service and develop new forms of financial technology. The rest of the fund is going to be used to incentivize small business customers to switch their accounts away from RBS, but the payouts have been delayed due to a failure to make senior hires at RBS on time. I think we've covered this story quite a bit on the show already. You know, there's a number of kind of players that are vying, as I I mentioned, to get their hands on this. So Santander, Starling, Metro Bank, Clydesdale, Yorkshire. Um, What do we think about this one in terms of like, why should senior hires at RBS be delaying? So I I don't think it was senior hires at RBS. It was Ah. senior hires into the the commission that's been appointed to pick the, you know, essentially like, what is it, the voice 
Like they're waiting to appoint Will I Am and Tom Jones. Everyone needs thing. Will I Am. Yeah, like to to kind of figure out who they spin around and give a bunch of money to. But um, so so I don't. I think it's been about getting the senior people who have got an element of impartiality that can actually then you know give away this money. Yeah, I think it was the uh, banking competition remedies. This the new government agency. So what I thought was interesting was, I mean, RBS is already being this is punitive, right? You were bad, and so now you're going to fund some good. And then this article is making it sound like it's RBS that is dragging their feet. And it isn't RBS at all. I'm sure that the money is ponied up and and they're ready for it. Um, So I think that was a little misleading. And I suppose something good is supposed to come out of a bad situation, which was the idea of penalizing them and then funding innovation. But what I thought was compelling was these uh, startup banks, these challenger banks, who one would assume um, part of their BAU, part of their, you know, MVP is to offer innovative solutions. And they should be kind of planning for their product development anyway. So my feeling was this money should be additive. But the way that the article read was that they're really upset that it's holding back them developing future products. And I kind of thought, well, shouldn't this just be a bonus? Like if you're counting your chickens before they're hatched, you're just gonna be mad that you don't have any chickens. I think that's the thing for me is, I mean, first of all, who knows what actually went down, right? And what plays out in the papers is oftentimes somewhat disconnected from the reality of it all. So I'd agree with that. And in terms of actually getting to the bottom of what the story is, But I think that that's right in terms of building your business. If you're banking, no pun intended, on funding from something that's ultimately coming from or relying on the government, and of course they aren't, right? Like their business is already and they're raising funds from other places, I'm sure. But that's something that I think you'd want to take into account, right? Mm. Yeah, completely. I think it was interesting that they sort of went into actually how some of the challenges are actually preparing bids for this as well. Some spending of are, loads of money yeah, to get are, money. <laughs> exactly. So Metro Bank has reportedly spent £590,000 on their application. Is that in mm-hmm. hard costs or in like soft costs, people costs? No. Hard costs. Hard costs. Yeah. That's the way it reads. Yeah. And like, that's going to the government, that I, money? I think it's going on purely preparing what they believe the application to be. So putting putting together basically the pitch for like what startup do you ever know who spent nearly six hundred thousand pounds to actually put together their pitch pack you know but this was off the back of them trying to apply for the 121 million pound fund starling have sort of said uh this is actually Anne Bowden saying that they've had a dedicated team working on the application but the one that doesn't really sort of make any sense to me is cybg have spent 35 million yeah. over the last six months 35 million. So like, and what are they going to get? Well, there's no currency million? symbol in front of that. So oh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. It, could, it could be anything <laughs> crazy, couldn't it? But, but even even still, like what, like whatever denomination that actually is sort of playing out to, then, oh, it's pounds. Producer Laura just dropped that in there. <laughs> 35 million pounds. What, like we, we struggled to figure out what they could have possibly been doing. Yeah, I don't want to understand actually um, how that breaks but, down. But well done then. And, and actually CYBG, these are the guys who've just bought Virgin Bank. So, like, clearly yeah. these guys have got quite a lot of, um, you know, money to be sort of moving around. And potentially if this is sort of revealing actually what they're, poten- you know, going to be doing in this space, if they're going to be, you know, rebranding themselves Virgin and looking directly into the SME market as well as the retail market that they're in, you know, it's going to yeah, be very the, interesting. The money is not for rebranding, right? 
No, the this, money this is supposed to be offering services yeah. and and products to SMEs yeah. and luring people away from RBA. But I, I, but it's not it's not clear though. So the five nineteen at Metro Bank is clearly as sort of outlined in the article purely on the application form. This yeah. is somebody filling out a form that I actually don't think the process has actually been defined yet. So anticipating what could be needed and spending nearly six hundred thousand pounds doing it like that's pretty ballsy. Like. It must be a really fucking nice pen, like that they're filling out the form in. That's the only thing I can think, you know, but like if one of those really like fancy Mont Blanc ones, you know, something. I, I I hope so. I I mean I hope that's what's going on. I, it's interesting. I mean, so it seems on the face of it, at least in terms of um, you know building digital products. I mean, it seems like wasted resource. the The reality is that actually it reads quite cynically because mm-hmm. you, you're sort of obviously reading about all this money that's almost being wasted. The reality is that actually. The SME market from a digital perspective has been so underserved for so long that actually the market opportunity, the potential here is huge. Hmm. And, and and there is something, you know, it, it almost underpins the frenzy that actually, you know, getting your hands on, on these tranches is potentially And to spend quite- all that money so that you can get money to do essentially what your value proposition is supposed to be structured yeah. about. Come on, we know it, it takes money to get money, right? You've got to, uh, that, that was very bush. I think I slightly butchered <laughs> that uh, that analogy there, but uh, definitely you've got to spend money to make money, right? you looking at me when you say that, David? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, th- I, think, I think that's right. I mean, it, it takes money to spend money and you have to make strategic investments. But if the landscape is shifting underneath them with what they think they're going after, what they think they're going to get and when they're going to get it, then, you know, it's probably not entirely fair. Yeah, I mean, I think if you spoke to the likes of um, Anne Bowden or people within Metro or CYBG, their first choice wouldn't be to be spending money on getting people to fill out a, an application form, right? But- sure, but I get, and, and from their perspective, it's it's an opportunity too good to turn down. Like, essentially, if you could, if you could fill in a form and get £121 million, then... Like, I'm going to have a bash at filling that form in after this podcast, just just because yeah. you never know what happens, you know? Is there an issue with the process? I mean, this kind of came off the back of Williams and Glynn, mm. that whole thing falling apart. and Yeah, look, I, th- I think this is a continued, um, it was a weird, cruel and unusual punishment. And the sort of cruel and unusual punishment of it seems to be sort of continuing to sort of play out within the media, doesn't it? So I kind of hope they put a bed to this one pretty quickly, then we can get on with doing interesting things in the SME space. So Agreed. Well, wait and see. So our next story today comes from the FT and it concerns Revolut and their reported suspected money laundering. So they discovered a spate of suspected money laundering on the digital payment system a few months ago and reported it to the NCA and the FCA. So what you're supposed to do, I guess. I think the speculation that the significance of the finding must be quite high to notify both organizations and the revealers also drawn criticism of their ability to keep themselves secure and compliant so i think there's something here maybe it's a wider industry point in the fintech space can they scale as quickly as they're looking to scale and can they also still throw all the necessary resources into being fully compliant? What, what do we think on this one? Because it has received a lot of criticism. Yeah, I, look, can you can you scale while staying compliant? Well, uh, that's not optional, right? You know, that's one of those things that the regulations do apply to everybody and therefore they're going to have to be in a situation where they do do that. Have they? I'm smart enough probably not to speculate on that one in, on a public setup in terms of kind of what we're doing, but it kind of feels like there's a lot of smoke here. So we'll kind of see how it sort of plays out. There's some certain irony here, though, that the various different powers of be at Revolut have been pretty 
uh, strong in the media of sort of mocking HSBC and various other people when they've had regulatory problems. Agreed. Um, so it'd be very interesting to sort of see how this one actually sort of pans out. But wasn't this off the back of a couple of weeks ago? Was it the Polish regulator asking the FCA to like keep an eye on That's right. Revolut, Just- which is a bit of a funny... Like a request, isn't it? You know what I mean? Yeah, and you know, I, I think something that will potentially continue to haunt Revolut is that they are at least perceived as being in this sort of uber mold of sort of move fast and break things, get things out there, and kind of make no apologies. They've had their share of scandals. So we mentioned the the Polish regulator and the the FCA request, and they had to freeze um, card issuance because they were issuing cards outside of Europe. So you know, they've they've had their issues. Um, I think in a way that's played into the sort of the criticism that they've received off the back of this. I've said before in the show, they just don't seem to have the cuddly edge of some of the other some of the other fintechs. I don't know if that's um, sort of Nikolai coming from a, an investment banking background, maybe. But well, some of it too is the story that they craft around themselves and how they craft the story. That they, they don't they don't have a cuddly PR machine that sits behind them and I think socializes what they're doing well. Um, it, it could be it could be done better. I think. One of the big things for me coming from the crypto space specifically is if you're going to scale and you're going to choose crypto as the route to scale, then there just is not a lot of room for error. The industry does not need somebody making somebody as big and as uh, visible as Revolut making mistakes around compliance. If they were going to have uh, challenges scaling, then perhaps crypto might not have been the most uh, appropriate route to go toward and um, ensuring that you have a head of compliance that's going to work, that's going to fit, that's going to stay there. So for whatever reason, they've had significant turnover in that area. I would have made sure that I had a really strong head of compliance that that fit culturally or what, whatever the, the challenge is addressed um, before they went into the crypto space because they're just opening the door to be further criticized. And they've had some pretty significant turnover there as well, haven't they? So consistency in these things when you're discussing things with the regulator is always probably quite a good starting point, isn't mm-hmm. it? You know? Well, the, they're, they're not building trust and credibility somewhere along the line that's missing. And so they're just kind of becoming a target. Mm. I, I worry if it calls into question like fintech more broadly because uh, you know if mm. you you can't um not saying they're a bad egg but you can't kind of let one bad egg kind of spoil everything in terms of actually with approaches so you know it'll be very interesting to see how the regulator actually does address this does step into it and what if there's any sort of particular issues in terms of what they're doing because it sounds from what has been sort of disclosed it does sound like they're asking for help you know rather mm. than it being you've been caught doing a thing which is different to you know how some well, of these they weren't caught out. so what they did was they reported uh, a SAR. So, you know, they, they had some activity that wasn't what it should have been, and they reported it. Because this story is on the back of another story, right? So the story is a continuing story. Whether or not um, the original intention was to seek credibility by saying we're reporting our SARS, but that's not necessarily something you get pat on the back for. It's what you're supposed to do. (laughs) And I suppose from a regulatory standpoint, as much as we like to move fast and break things, regulators don't really like people to break things, especially when it has to do with money laundering, right? Yeah, not so good, right? Not so good. Yeah, I mean, I think from a marketing standpoint, to me, this actually feels like they do have 
whether it's a PR team or a PR agency, but some type of somebody whispering in their ear about how to handle a situation like this. Because from my perspective, I think that they're handling a, a bad situation, right? It's not like it's a good thing to be in, but they're handling it in the right way. They're coming out with the announcement, right? They're, they're creating the news around it. They're trying to own and control the story while at the same time making a little bit of a, a cheeky, you know, jab at HSBC and trying to deflate the significance of it a little bit. So I think that they're handling it the right way. I think to your point, David, this is a headline for naysayers or detractors of fintech in general to grab onto, but it kind of is what it is. And it matters. The pattern matters a lot more than the anomaly, you know? So if there's a continuation of stories like this, then I think people start to get really worried. But I think there's a lot of good things happening in fintech, at least from a mainstream consumer standpoint. And I think people see a lot more about that. The thing that matters so much more, I think, in a situation like this, rather than the specifics of what actually happened for Revolut, is the trust that they can potentially lose in their brand. Because that's in the long term, 10 years from now, in the in the longevity of what's actually going to matter to their business, it's about whether or not they can continue to keep and grow consumer trust. I think that was your point, right, though, Ross, wasn't it? Well, we say this all the time. People don't necessarily buy what you're selling. They buy who you are. They buy the brand. If you're doing it the right way. Absolutely. Mm. Which, well, and um, David, you'll you'll remember whilst we were in Amsterdam a couple of weeks ago, a good friend this of going? both of us <laughs> lost. Oh, well, careful! Uh, the phone broke. I won't say oh, whose yes. phone broke, yes. and then had wanted to access Revolut to get access yes. to money, cash, whatever. Yep. I can't remember exactly what she was trying to do. Sent a, a tweet to mm. them asking for help, yep. and and got back. A real rash of shit. Mm. So going back to kind of the integrity of the brand, when these isolated, hopefully, incidents happen, um, but you have a customer base that believes you and trusts you. But if it's, I think it's a communication problem. Yeah, I, I probably I, more than what they're doing in their business. I think so. I think they're they're in a really interesting situation because I I think it's. like communications are always in the ears of the receiver, really, from my perspective. I think it's uh, you've got to either be so careful about what you're saying and how you're saying it that actually it can't be it can't be seen as a as a uh, any sort of slight of in, uh, inflammatory because there's is something almost impossible to the point where you basically have to say nothing. Yeah, you become and this is actually probably where big brands are. Most big brands have to be so vanilla that they actually can't say anything particularly interesting because somebody's going to get offended somewhere and take it the wrong way right yeah, yeah. whereas actually like I, I find a lot of the stuff that Revolut does on Twitter hilarious if I'm honest with you like some of it is like they they take you know the Wendy's approach to social media you know they're going to be quite aggressive and quite but I agree with you they uh, are, like yeah. I, I think we can say leader because it was all publicly and it was out there but it was leader glyptus in terms of doing it so she, I'm sure she'll be fine with that sorry um, leader yeah like she's just happy she gets a shout out I think that's fine <laughs> but definitely I think the some people I think some people can say it's not what you say it's the way that you say it yeah Uh, and i think sometimes an exclamation mark or a smiley face can get you at least plausible deniability when it comes to being a dick and if you don't do that then i think you get into a situation Mm -hmm. where actually people just presume you are without having it but it shows the importance of managing in the right way all of those individual customer touch points because that is your brand to be honest with you it's why i never use full stops anymore i just use smiley faces because i'm like it, had, a, it yeah. had an emoji. I'm being fine. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. This, if, if you take it the wrong way, I put a smiley face. I, I think leveling it up for me 
the thing that I think contributes to doing so much of this, whether it's the communications, the PR, the customer service, even the product to a certain extent, doing it the right way or the wrong way is whether you're coming at it from a customer-centric or a business-centric perspective, aka whether or not you're leading with empathy or you're leading with your own self-interest. And I think that if you get that right, and the punchline is it should be empathy, then all of these things fall out the right way. So to me, while it's not a great situation for them, I think that they're handling it in probably a better way. I completely agree with that. I think the difficulty is is that startups really struggle with that because they're not business-led, they're not, they're not customer-led. Predominantly, they're investor-led. They've got pretty... And is it Peter Thiel's behind... I'm going to make that up. I'm looking around the room for people to nod or disagree. Is I Peter Thiel so. an investor in Revolut? I think so. Um, so, you know, the the types of people who invest in these things are looking for short-term returns. So they are looking for that scale at any cost thing. I think there's, you know, to your point about empathy, I think it's, I think it's like sustainability. I, I don't see enough people thinking about things in a sustainable way. That actually means the thing that they're doing and succeeding from today, they're going to be able to do three weeks from now, three months from now, and it not have that such a degradation. It's like email distribution lists in 1990 type thing. Everybody just like filled their boots for as much as they could. Mm-hmm. And now and then everybody hated email and nobody ever uses yeah, it. Yeah, marketers ruin everything. Exactly. They yeah. really do. <laughs> so I, I think the thing that I would disagree with a little bit, but I think is an interesting conversation is, and maybe we're getting a little bit off topic, but I would actually argue, and your perspective is interesting and I'm considering it, but I think startups are have the ability and a lot of it depends on the founder of course and the leadership team to be more empathetic because they're closer to the consumer right if you compare a startup to a big organization the people making decisions for the most part in a big organization are not as close to the consumer and are much more incentivized let's be honest for business outcomes mm-hmm. as opposed to consumer outcomes so i think that that's an interesting conversation about how you can scale that within a larger organization. Yeah, completely agree. Cool. Well, moving on, our next story comes from Banking Tech, and it's about the EU taking issue with the fintech market being anti-competitive. A European Parliament report into fintech says the industry is currently, quote-unquote, too young. It cannot define boundaries between what is and what isn't fintech, and concludes that as such, there are no estimates of turnover in fintech across Europe. It also has concerns that the market is not yet competitive enough. There's a lot of shaking heads around the table I right now. I thought this article was so weird. Man, me too. So the, the quote is, the current state of markets for fintech services is generally too fluid to reach firm conclusions on the existence of competition challenges. I'm going to throw this out and let everybody have a bit of a feeding frenzy because this seems to me pretty ridiculous. Yeah, this this sounds like it sounds like when my dad tried to describe hip hop to me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's, um, like I just sort of feel it's like a very confused kind of description about what actually is happening in an industry type thing because actually like the competition around fintech is one thing but the competition within the financial services perspective has never been better Agreed. like the particularly in the european union actually we're in a situation where customers have more choice than ever about the types of people that they want to use for a whole plethora of different services whether it's international remittance or you know the account you want to give your kids or the you know the account that you and your partner want to use on a day-to-day basis so you know and it's it's actually organizations like the transfer wises the monzos the starlings the revolutes the you know various different people kind of in that mix who are really creating that competition from the big incumbent organizations. But that's what it felt like. It almost felt like, and I'm sure this is what happened, but being skeptical, like 
you know, some incumbents got together and paid someone to produce a report that said fintechs are creating, you know, this unfair competition. And what I thought was interesting, so I, I decided to actually read the report. It was very long and uh, interesting. But in the very beginning, it says that um, they note that their concerns that they've identified are hypothetical. And bold underlying letters. These are hypothetical concerns. And I thought, okay, you've written a whole report about hypothetical concerns. And either the industry is too young and, and, or there's competition issues. It can be both, right? So if there's this young industry, then, you know, what kind of competition issues are they creating? Number one. And I also don't think this is a specific fintech issue. I think that this would be happening in any industry vertical when you have um, a number of, of competitors. And the whole purpose of fintech challengers are, are meant to be disruptive entrants. So it almost felt like incumbents were going, oh, gosh, you know, maybe, maybe that's creating competition. But I don't think that the fintech community is colluding to, you know, steal incumbent customers. And that's kind of how that report read yeah it uh, yeah there's a lot of craziness i just said so the same report that said that fintech was too young said that the average percentage of digitally active customers using fintech services in 2017 was 33 percent yeah so a third so that seems quite high and also it's a cross product so fintech services related to payments and transfers the 50 percent of these users followed by insurance 24 savings investments 20 financial planning 10 percent and borrowing 10 percent so that though, as, as as far as KPIs go, they look okay to me. So, does this? What's the purpose of this report? And is it leading to anything, or it's just a report? It's a hypothetical report about hypothetical. possible future anti-competition. So, yeah, <laughs> I think issues it's being created. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. I'm going to come at it from a different angle. So, being uh, an American living in the UK, having made that move about two years ago, two and a half years ago, focus group of one, the fintech boom market world that exists here in London, at least, and can't speak for the rest of the UK or Europe, is so much further along than where it is in the US. So as a consumer, I feel like I have so many more options, whether it's using TransferWise to move money back to the US or Monzo, so I don't have to pay foreign transaction fees when I'm traveling on the continent. So I, from my perspective, whatever's happening here, whatever they think about it, I think it's great compared to where things are in the US. I think I might have sent you a WhatsApp message while I was out there, but like, what is with the US and signing for everything? Because yeah. like you, you know, you, you both when you did somebody try and give you a check? Well, so they they've we've my had, parents give me checks. We had a number of checks sent to us. Yeah, which is just bizarre. Yeah, like from the US to here, people carry their checkbooks with them. Yeah, it's weird. It's like in but, their handbags. But the most bizarre, and, I, and I'm I'm gonna have to write something about it if I'm honest with you. But like payments from a transportation perspective seem to be like the 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 starting point for innovation in yeah. pretty much every country. Yeah. Like except the US. Like if you take like the Gao train in, in Johannesburg, if you take the octopus in you know the using the octopus cards in in Hong Kong, like even like Oyster started it in the UK. Like if you go to the US, like we're trying to pay for a uh, a train ticket in chicago and i put my american express card in thinking you know american express america would be fine get asked to put in a postal code of my address and i'm like and if it's not a u.s zip code it's not gonna take it it only took numbers and i'm like nr no that is not working so um so we're like oh great now what do we do and jeff in the team was like beverly hills 90210 and he was like 90210 did it worked fine so it was not tying into any validation in any way, shape, or form. They're obviously not using that as a verification 
thing. So what what's the point? As far as I can tell, none. I, was we the were machine able to just buy, trying to make conversation? Yeah, pretty much. We, we were able to buy <laughs> three tickets on the Chicago to the uh, airport and sweat like everybody else. It was good. That baffles me. Genuinely. It does. Mm-hmm. It's weird. But the US is definitely way behind I mean, when it comes I remember, to this stuff. I don't care how many years ago it was at this point, six maybe, when Simple kind of became a thing in the US mm. and everybody was so excited about that. Um, or Venmo, they think it's like Venmo. the most Venmo's amazing still, thing Venmo's that's still ever amazing. happened. Yeah, but but Venmo's good, but it's it's papering over the cracks. That's the thing. So Venmo is required in the US. Here we've got faster payments. It's yeah. just not needed. You yeah. Know? yeah, yeah, that was an adjustment for me is not being able to Venmo people. <laughs> but it's an, I mean, just on that note, it's 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 interesting that you have such a in certain ways it's such a big market in the US, right? So many big financial institutions that there's not more innovation coming from there. You know, like one of the big banks should have been the ones to invent Venmo. Well, they're harder to disrupt. And I think that kind of goes back to the whole idea around fintech disruption. So if something is broken, if something doesn't work well, if there's a better way to do it and somebody, you know, smart and agile and savvy mm-hmm. can solve it and offer a value proposition to the customer that makes sense brilliant. There's nothing from stopping these incumbents from either partnering or developing their own or, you know, Mm. even fast following that still doesn't seem to be happening. One of the other things that came out of this report was, I've quoted this, it said, computer algorithms may promote collusion because they can learn by themselves and they can collude the best way to maximize profits and then therefore develop collusive practices. So they're basically talking around um, the computers getting together. And right. It's like Skynet. And this is all product. driven by fintech. And I thought this, to myself, well, David, there's I nothing. I think this is probably making your dad explaining what hip hop is sound really appealing. Yeah. yeah. But, but it does sound so much like that, doesn't it? It's like yes. uh, the computers, they're going to take over. They're, like, yes. they're going to steal our jobs type thing. Can we get your dad on the podcast? I feel like that would be a good episode. <laughs> Sounds like a good idea at some point. Okay. So moving on to our next story, which comes from the FT and looks at a fintech player that is very much delivering real uh, competition. So Kalina prepares for the launch of its payment card and for expansion. So Kalina was valued at 2.5 billion last year and has become one of Europe's biggest startups, second only to the recently listed Adyen in the fintech world. So it's the biggest fintech group in Europe to get a banking license, and it's now preparing to launch its first payment card and launch outside of Germany and Scandinavia. So there's 1,000 people currently testing the card. And it's got features such as Visualize Your Economy, which shows you the exact product you bought and allows you to track its delivery or return it or speak to customer services all within the same app. So they're delivering these end-to-end journeys. And this is what I really like. So the CEO said, we want to help people make smarter spending decisions, which is totally different to a traditional bank, is that we are doing it in a customer-centric way. I don't think Steve Jobs built the iPhone to destroy Nokia, but to make people's lives better, we're trying to do the same. So what do we think about this? Do you actually think that, I mean, have you really dug into the product? Because the spin is good. Right, the story Absolutely. is good, and as a marketer, you know I I adore the marketing. Yeah. I adore the marketing, but when I dig into the product and I I put my skeptical hat on, it's it's kind of not that cool. So essentially, it's it's a COD. It's an invoice, right? You're buying something on an invoice. Yeah. Um, and there's also some similarities to um like a layaway, like circa 1980 in the US where you would go in and pay $5 every week until you yep. could take the item home with you. And if you read the comments on that article, mm. the the people in Sweden 
don't really like it. They don't understand what the proposition is and why Klarna is sitting in the middle. Why can't they just buy on their credit card? So being forced through the, the Klarna platform is actually irritating to people that are actually able to use this. So I'm not sure what product they're launching far and wide, but I'm a little confused around what the MVP is here. I, I think this is uh, this is essentially Klarna trying to move from the beachhead that they had, which was the, you know, the acting like an intermediary from a payments rails perspective into adding more value. I guess we've seen this with other players with um, TransferWise starting with international remittances and moving to a current account and almost like moving to the point where you can actually, rather than being the button in somebody else's thing, being the thing that you've got your own button in. So it kind of it kind of makes sense, but I don't think Klarna are a a public enough brand mm. um you know it's like whoever makes the roads deciding to kind of make cars like it doesn't necessarily make sense they don't have the brand to be in a situation to to sort of convey that from a b2c perspective like don't get me wrong like Kleiner, Kleiner and um, Adyen have done a, an amazing job b2b style yeah. um but it's whether that can translate now to a b2c thing and actually get you know get really People kind of excited about this stuff, and it's 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 a very different proposition from B to B to C to to B to C, and it, it is about those end to end journeys. What's really interesting is already they're getting that awareness because something that's come out is that client is becoming like a verb. So this idea of like telling someone to client it, like if you're looking at a purchase and you can't you can't afford it, saying oh client it, it's the same as like Google it or Uber it, or as, as Eric just said that the Venmo it. Mm-hmm. Um, so so building that awareness among. Um, Millennials, I guess. Although I hate that word. I um the the other thing about this is, have you ever heard anybody quote Steve Jobs without being a massive knob? <laughs> like because generally there's like mm. always there's an underlying yeah. thing there, isn't there? That basically if you if you have to pull out the Steve Jobs quote, you're probably being a dick. But also there is something behind it. So the quote was about it's not about trying to destroy Nokia. It's about trying to make people's lives better. And so the the way that Klein has organized with two thousand workers have been divided into two hundred and fifty teams that are each focusing on a specific customer problem and they're trying to solve it from the the customer. So it's about like outside in rather than inside out, right? So there is something in that. I, I think there's a lot of things here. I think, you know, we had the conversation about empathy and being customer centric. So it's interesting to have this be the next story because, of course, it seems like they're taking that approach. But we also talked a little bit earlier that with branding, if you're doing it right, people buy the brand, not the product. So yeah. to me, it seems like that's the push that they're trying to make, right? Is trying to step outside the box of the service and the functionality that people know them for and establish the brand as something that can sit on top of a whole suite of services because. To tie in another thing that we talked about, the pressure as a startup founder from investors is to find new areas of revenue and new areas of scale, right? So I'm sure that that contributed to this as well and trying to figure out, okay, what's next and how do we elevate the brand to be sitting above a bunch of different business units? And to Tina's point on that as well, it's it's almost about driving a shift in mindset from the, mm-hmm. the yeah. consumer perspective, because particularly if you look at the UK, we're so used to spending on credit cards you know, spending on credit cards is through the roof. So trying to sort of re-engineer that almost and say, all right, actually, now we want you to do it through Klarna and installment lending. It is an interesting thing, though. Like the Scandinavian region generally seems to be ridiculously innovative. Yeah. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, out of the, you know, the Finlands, the Icelands, the Norways, et cetera, there seems to be just an amazing amount of stuff that's actually coming out of that region as, because we've seen like Swish and Tiki and also, you know, like all sorts of amazing payment ecosystem things that That are slick and just work. Yeah. But for, you know, for such a small region, such a small population, then, 
you know, it's just amazing how much stuff is actually happening there. But I think what's interesting about that is that removal from the cash. So Sweden, in particular, they're actually facing as a central bank, the issue of they really don't have any more cash floating around and businesses are refusing to take cash. Yeah. So and and what does that mean for for fiat in general? Are they just going to go to a fully digitized well, fiat and, currency? And there's genuine fear that they are. Yeah. Like, Genuine fear. People are scared that they're going to move into a fully cashless society. And so if you do that and you're already used to paying for things in this digitized way, and I think that this is what some of the comments in that FT article were saying, they're already used to this straight through, what they feel like is this straight through transaction, right? And if the if the Klarna system, the platform is somehow sitting in the middle, so this could be an evolution of what's next for them mm. and what they choose to launch in other regions or jurisdictions, hopefully are going to be tailored to, you know, the adoption habits of, mm. of the cultures that they're going into. But the straight through processing that um, is very prevalent already in Sweden doesn't necessarily seem to align to the current offering there. Mm. So that's where I felt like there was a bit of a disjointed proposition. Agree. I can't imagine this is going to take on particularly well in non-Scandinavian countries. I think similar to the Venmo thing, actually, there's this problem's been solved in other countries already. Um, you know. Uh, I guess it's going to be interesting to see what they do. But given that they've got a valuation already of 2.5 billion, then, you know, they're doing all right. <laughs> yeah. They'll come up with something cool. Indeed. <laughs> like Klarna doesn't quite roll off the tongue like Uber at, or, or Uber, grab an Uber or Monzo me or anything like that. Yeah. Until it does, right? Great. All right. Well, on that, it's time for a quick break. We'll be back very shortly. Imagine a new era of banking defined by an end-to-end digital platform that is open, packaged, and upgradable. Harnessing real-time data to enrich client lives. Adopting the cloud to increase speed, agility, and scale. Using APIs to create platforms and ecosystems that redefine value in a world of open banking. It's time to reshape banking. Temenos, with 25 years of experience spanning 3,000 banks in over 150 countries, helps banks achieve their digital vision faster. And welcome back to the show. As a reminder, Fintech Insider is brought to you by 11FS. We build fully digital products and services for clients big and small. If you want to reach out to us, you can find us at 11FS.com, connect on Twitter at 11FS team, or drop us an email, hello at 11FS.com. Now on with the show. So this story comes from Reuters, and it's about M-Pesa expanding into Ethiopia. So Kenya Safaricom is in advanced talks to take M-Pesa to Ethiopia. The Ethiopian market is 100 million people. They've got 20 million active users in Kenya, evolving from a basic money transfer service to a financial platform offering savings, loans, insurance products in conjunction with local lenders. So Ethiopia's banking sector is currently dominated by the Commercial Bank of Ethiopia, which holds around 70% of assets. So this is pretty sure to mix up the uh, the financial financial mix, financial environment in, in Ethiopia, right? That's insane. A hundred million people in Ethiopia. Insane. That right? is crazy. I know. But I guess on this, though, we, we've seen M-Pesa try to go to kind of a few different countries in a few different regions in in Africa we more broadly uh, they haven't always shown the same sort of results that they had initially in terms of the you know the the sort of localization of it you know I, I think they I think they sort of bit off slightly more that they can chew to a certain degree so it'd be really interesting to actually uh, I guess understand what their 
what are they doing to really localize the product, the services that they're actually offering to the local market beyond what they did before? Yeah. Um, because I think this is where they came unstuck. It was a, hey, we did this in another country. Let's give it a go here. And nobody cared. Yeah. Well, they went to a country that didn't have a need. So if you look at exactly. South Africa, you know, they, they had 80% banked. But, so there, there weren't going to be this huge plethora of people in need of the service. And that's the stark contrast, right? Because they brought something like 67% of the adult population in Kenya into the formal financial system. Yeah. I mean, that speaks to a very specific problem and then a tailored solution that you know, address that, address that need, right? So to David's point, it's, it's, it's how are they going to localize it? How are they going to tailor it to the Ethiopian market? But there's huge potential there, right? Well, I think what's great about Ethiopia specifically, so they've got this new prime minister that is actively looking for foreign investment into their country. Um, and another article I read um, was talking about they've just relinquished their stake in Ethio Telecom, which is a state-owned telecommunications company, for this, or at the same time as um, bringing Safaricom in to be able to to enable this. And the other thing they're doing is ensuring that any of the cross uh, mobile network operator fees are going to be matched. Mm. So it's not going to cost you more money because that was a big concern with M-Pesa earlier in previous years that whilst you had access, it was very expensive um, if you were going across MNO providers. So um, it looks like they, yeah, yeah, it looks like they have learned from their mistakes and they're well positioned to make this a success. I think there's another element of this for me. So there's the the government side of it, of course, there's the product side, business operations, the talent that they're going to need to be able to scale. But there's also a cultural component in the sense that Mpesa, you know, is so you know, household name, everybody knows it, everybody trusts it back to the conversation that we had about brand trust in uh, in Kenya. And it's not necessarily starting from scratch in Ethiopia, but they have to not only build that, but also adapt it to that market so that there's buy-in from the inside out. And it's not just imposing a Kenyan system into a new market and a new culture. So I think that to a certain extent is the role of marketing. And so I would imagine that they're thinking about that, but that's a piece that they're going to need to get right in order to make this successful. I think that's something that we're pretty much universally agreed on, isn't it? It's how do you localize it? How do you tailor it to the Ethiopian market? And that's basically going to define the success. Mm-hmm. Super worth going checking out those. So on uh, episode 203, we had Leslie Ann Vaughan, who was the uh, one of the co-founders, originators yeah. of M-Pesa. Literally, super, super smart lady. Had a, She's got her name on the original patent for M-Pesa. So she's a pretty, uh, pretty good person to go and listen to. Episode 203. Check that one out for sure. And anyone unfamiliar with M-Pesa can uh, check out our end-to-end journeys available on our competitor insights platform, 11FS Pulse. So anyone that wants to do that, visit 11FSPulse.com or or email pulse11fs.com to request a demo. Our next story comes from TechCrunch and is to do with PayPal investing in cross-border payments. So I quite like this story. They've led a £50 million round for cross-border specialist, payment specialist PPRO, and PPRO offers merchants a seamless way of accepting payments from customers using whatever the most popular payment form happens to be in that particular country. So it covers over 140 payment methods, and the plan will be to add more countries and more payments into the mix. So again, its most famous competitor is Adyen, uh, Europe's biggest IPO of 2018, and kind of plays into what has been multiple PayPal investments slash acquisitions since May. So iZettle, Jetlore, Simility, and HyperWallet. So um, what's going on here? What's the sort of trend, the investments? What's what do we see? Mm, it's an interesting one, isn't it? They they seem to have completely changed what their strategy is yeah. rather than sort of building their own things and moving forwards. They just started pumping a bunch of money into buying other things, which like 
you know, if you've made a bunch of money, you can go and do that. Why not, I guess? But CRM, AI, fraud risk yeah. management systems in a gig economy payment it's a, setup. It's, it's a broad bunch, isn't it? Well, it, it sounds like kind of a move from much more of a retail focus to much more of a uh, an SME focus to me in terms of where we're going. Like, bizarrely, given the conversations we we're having earlier on about the RBS funds, like, could we see PayPal pitching in for one of those things, do you think? Well, to me, I thought that it looked like they were purposely going after the merchant space, mm. right? So they've got the retail space, and now that maybe potentially looking at the other side, and then they can kind of lock up both sides yeah. of the transaction, and or global expansion by acquisition. I mean, that's not a new strategy, right? Nope. And and has been successful. Works pretty well, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> in the best. So yeah, the the P Pro, I think it's a terrible name. Going back to Klarna, uh, P Pro is worse. But uh, it to me, it feels like it could be part of the PayPal brand. So I just wonder investing in it versus acquiring it. And they've done all these other acquisitions. I would have thought they could have built it into their platform structure and actually controlled both sides of the transaction. So I think that's kind of one of the interesting things about why did they go investment when they're acquiring everybody else? I think that if you're really thinking long-term and really trying to position your business to be a market leader, you have to move quickly and throw your weight and throw your capital around when the landscape is changing as dramatically and as quickly as it is right now. I think there's a lot of uh, big companies out there, big tech companies in particular, that are holding on to a lot of capital. And I think that that creates vulnerability because there's a ton of companies being started out there that right now cost 50 million and may not be real challengers to their business, but two, three, four years from now actually could be. So I think it's, I think it's offense and defensive strategy together is one that includes proactive and aggressive M&A as well as trying to build it in-house. It's a proactive strategy to sort of yeah. like pretty much take the competitors out at an early stage. Yeah, and then the other, the real question comes into, you you can't buy your way out of it forever, right? You have to find ways to actually be able to incorporate this talent and this perspective and these capabilities into your business. And so that's the next question. But of course, there's the team that's responsible for the strategy, the growth strategy and the M&A. And then I'm sure there's a team that's responsible for how you integrate it. So mm-hmm. that's going to be another big question as well. Yeah. It's interesting when you put it like that, isn't it? It's almost like a cynical play. It's just this idea of kind of, yeah. They could be big and they could be a threat in the future. So let's get them in. It's almost like hedging. We'll find it. We'll find a use for them. We'll kind of figure it out. Yeah. I think if you're, if you're, you know, market leader, then yeah. you got to act like one, right? And you got to move quickly. I think that's the biggest problem is a lot of people let some of these people that they, some of these companies that they don't think are going to be a problem sit around for too long. Yeah. Then why not acquire them? Why not just buy them outright? I think it's the full remit. I think I'm sure that maybe that was something that they were potentially interested in doing and weren't able to get the deal done. Mm. But I think this is better than. Nothing, Nothing at all. Yeah. Mm. And and how much of a say or a stake or a strategic view do they actually have at that point from a board perspective? So, mm. yeah, it's it's super interesting. I guess there's lots of big companies that have invested. You know, we talked about Simple earlier on. There's a lot of big companies that have bought things that they haven't necessarily understood and have kind of destroyed the value of pretty quickly, haven't they? So, I like I I do think an investment in something that has the potential to grow into something that would be beneficial to you. It's almost like don't pick the fruit from the tree too quickly, really. So it's, um, yeah, super, super interesting to see how this one plays out. Do we think it's part of a coherent long-term strategy? Time is going to tell, right? I think they want to be on both sides of the transaction myself. Yeah, yellow brick road. All right, well, staying with payments, our next story comes from the FT and looks at payment rules potentially leading to a billion pound loss for Chinese 
giant Alipay and Tencent. So in January 2017, the People's Bank of China announced that it was requiring third-party payment groups to keep 20% of customer deposits in a single dedicated custodial account at a commercial bank and specified that this account would pay no interest. So last month, the central bank announced that it would raise the reserve requirement to 100% by next January. And at that point, payment groups will earn zero interest on all customer funds. So this ruling will result in a $1 billion loss of revenue for Alipay and Tencent, who hold 54% and 39% of the mobile payments market. So the mobile payment transactions moved over $16 trillion in 2017. So we kind of touched on this before we started recording. I think we all kind of agreed that we pretty much saw this coming. But um, what's the overriding sentiment? Why are they doing it? So mm. I, I know they talk about it being a fraud measure, you know, talking about embezzlement in terms of the uh, protection that they still offer up to customers. But I don't know how penalizing the banks making money from that money making money. Yeah. makes any sense at all the the money actually sitting there and earning interest in in any element of account it will always be instantaneously accessible from those organizations so it, it feels like a a kind of a pointless measure i bet i i wonder if it's i mean my first question was what is this in response to and i couldn't really you know is this is this a measure put in place because of a problem that occurred and i couldn't really find one but I suppose if you look at Alipay in the context of, well, they're acting like a bank, so we're going to put the same kind of governance around where we would do a HSBC needs to segregate retail customer funds from the investment bank so that those funds are protected. So I can kind of understand like the segregating of deposits. But, you know, if you go back to banking again, there there was a period when banks were not going to take non-operational deposits because the interest rate was so low that it was costing them money. So they were charging people for non-operational deposits. I don't know where this is coming from, and so I don't really understand the logic. Do I think that $1 billion is going to take either one of these companies out? No, this is obviously not catastrophic for them. But it does seem to be it's not, why. It's, it's not catastrophic, but I don't. they're probably not going to take a billion, a billion dollars, dollars is a lot sitting of money, down, yeah. right? So I mean, that's <laughs> the question is what happens now, right? Where does that cost get passed on to? And how does it affect the consumer? Yeah, because fundamentally, this would have been the business model to get into this, to move this money around in terms of what they're doing. So, but like you say, it does feel like a, what are you really mad at, mum? You know, like, what's mm-hmm. the what's the thing that's actually upset you? Because this isn't clearly it, but there's something. So, mm-hmm. uh, so I, I guess it's at what point the uh, People's Bank of China kind of fess up to... Uh, to Alipay and Tencent what it is that they actually did. But, you know, given the amount of money that they're moving, given the amount of money that they're already making. And then, I think that's it. Yeah. They're getting a little, they're getting too close to home, yeah. right? They're, they're starting to look and feel and act like a bank. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. Like, like any, like Starbucks, right? Starbucks own... The, all of the cash reserves that people have of the money sitting in the app, the mobile wallet that you can do. Like they make millions and millions and millions of pounds off just purely off the interest of those things. It's part and parcel of how that stuff works. It's one of the major reasons why they do it, you know. I think, isn't Starbucks one of the biggest deposit takers in Absolutely. Like, globally not, because yeah, of that? And, and not, not even to mention the breakage. So when mm-hmm. people stop using those cards, mm-hmm. you know, after a while that basically 
Free money. Yeah, mm-hmm. pocket the money. And I mean, I definitely contributed to that. Yeah, I think we all, I, think we, I mean, it, you draw as you pull out Starbucks cards that have a couple of pounds on them here and there. and Like eight with 67 pence on them. Yeah, exactly. All right, so we don't know quite what the, uh, the actual driver is here from the People's Bank of China perspective, but it's a bit of a slap on the wrist. And I mean, whether or not it's going to take them down, it's killing a pretty steady revenue stream and nice to have right i'd be pissed like yeah. you know you try and take a billion dollars off of me for no reason i'd be pretty un- un- unhappy about that whole scenario but um i'm sure these guys will live to fight another day won't they oh, i'm absolutely certain um and moving on to our next story which comes from business insider kodak's bitcoin rigs have had their moment this is i think an a really interesting one i remember covering this one on the show when 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 this was announced so a weird scheme to rent out kodak branded bitcoin mining rigs has collapsed um so this was a kodak branded Shocker. bitcoin yeah right <laughs> mining rig uh which premiered at ces will not go ahead um the company behind the project spotlight told the bbc the scheme has been blocked by the u.s financial watchdog i mean shock again right no no real surprises there but it's i mean it just gets weirder and weirder originally the rig was marketed as a rentable Bitcoin miner for which customers would pay up front $3,400 for a two-year deal. But that wasn't all. They would then keep um, half of all of the, the cryptocurrency that was mined. I mean, the whole thing to me just seemed ridiculous. And I think the fact that it's fallen over, I don't think surprises anyone, right? Well, I, for one, am devastated. <laughs> I was so looking forward yeah. to it. I don't, I, I mean, like... Plug and play what, Is there that mining? much to talk about here? Like, how real was this to begin with? It seems like 2018 was the year of the hashtag Bitcoin marketing play, and every company tried to put their foot forward in some way or another. So I don't think... Even if it was just renaming yourself. Yeah, right. It was like Long Island Ice Tea, right? right? Yeah. Well, exactly. I, the, the funniest part about this, I mean, it's ridiculous, but it is hilarious, yeah. was that they had actually failed to calculate that Bitcoin mining becomes more difficult over time. So when they sold it, they had these revenue projections that basically said, over two years, you're going to make $9,000. But it was actually something like $2,000, which was less than you would have paid for the two-year thing. So anybody that understood how mining becomes more difficult over time, and it's a fairly simple calculation. I mean, you could just look it up on the internet would have been able to tell you that made absolutely no sense whatsoever. Nobody cares about numbers and financial <laughs> services. And we wonder why this scheme was blocked by the financial watchdog in the US. Right? <laughs> it's really sad though, because it's, it's, this is a once great brand in the mm. death throes lashing out to any kind of opportunity to kind of grab the limelight to a certain degree in terms of stuff that's doing. So like, I, I wonder how long until this company doesn't exist anymore. But yeah. Kodak. 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 Well, I think the article also said that the machines magically no longer display the Kodak brand anymore. And now they're just spotlight Bitcoin mining machines. Weird that. Again, that's cynical. And I mean, the whole thing for the, the, this whole thing for me is, is, is cynical. Um, I'm all for sort of democratizing things like cryptocurrency, you know, Robinhood, I think of, you know, I mean, it's debatable. But I think, you know, they've they've sort of democratized cryptocurrency. We talked a little bit earlier about Revolut. I think they've had the same effect to to a degree, bringing it to the masses. But this is just cynical, like $3,400 up front and half the earnings from your, your cryptocurrency that's mined. I mean, it's just a, literally a cynical play just to jump on the bandwagon, isn't it? Uh, yes. Awesome. Well, our and finally story this week comes from BuzzFeed. I think it should always come from BuzzFeed. I love this. Here are the funniest things people said about Prime Day's technical issues so this is the uh, sort of flash sale for for amazon prime customers began at 3 p.m est 
and literally pretty much straight away or just before reports came in that the websites weren't working so as you guys can imagine there was a pretty fiery twitter storm people going a little bit crazy but it was at least fun to watch from a uh, from a distance from a neutral perspective amazon issued a statement to say they were working on it at 5 p.m est and instead of deals people were shown pictures of dogs looking sad which actually kind of softened the blow a little bit mm-hmm. i don't know if you guys looked worse. at these tweets and they were yeah. kind of like all right i mean this is a pretty poor experience but at least i've got <laughs> dogs that i can look at while this is going on but you know the reality is people missed out on deals baskets were unexpectedly emptied and the view deals ux was taking people on an endless loop so the one that i found most funny on this is somebody tweeted oh i get it the amazon prime day deal is where you get to save a hundred percent of your money i thought that was like funny. that was that i think out of the all of them i think was probably the best or I loved we're an hour into prime day and i think i've bought six dogs <laughs> <laughs> it's that it's that sort of uncertainty what's going to turn up on the on the doorstep I, I like i can't believe i didn't know anything about this given how obsessed i am with buying crap through amazon then how did i not know it was prime day like to be honest with you, like every day is prime day for me really so uh, that's really probably is. why you know the uh, the delivery guys by name now. I, think. I pretty much do. It's yeah. kind of getting quite sad now, quite awkward, you know. You have to dig through to your desk. Well, my whole thing was I do order from Prime almost every day. Mm. Like I never, if, if it can't come to me, then I probably don't need it. Yeah. If I can't um, get it in 24 hours, I don't want it. Yeah, like, <laughs> Wednesday's no good to me, right? Yes. So when I hear about, you know, Prime Day, I think, ooh, I'm not shopping that day. That's like going to the mall on the Friday after Thanksgiving Agreed. and wondering what all the people are doing there. So I mean, Queuing outside for your TV on Black Friday. Exactly. No thanks. But I thought this tweet was particularly funny, saying an endless loop of clicking shop all deals followed by photos of sad dogs is exactly the America we deserve right now. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? That I think that's that's a worthy point on which to end. So on that note, this wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to all of our guests. Guys, where can people uh, find out more about you, Eric? Uh, on Twitter at efulweiler, or uh, email is actually always best, so efulweiler at vaynermedia.com. Awesome. Tina? On Twitter at, at Tina, T-E-A-N-A, Taylor or tina at coinfloor.co.uk. Excellent. And David? At David Breer on Twitter. Doesn't really change, does it? Do you know what? I've given out emails. Like, I'll do a postal address at some point just, just to really mix it up and see who gets involved. We normally reserve that for Charlie Wood, don't we? We do. Yeah, he does, yeah. But I've given out Instagram, Twitter, email. Like, I need to do postal address soon, you know. You so, should. Yeah. And see what kind of gifts you I receive. did, yeah. I gave out my Xbox gamertag a couple of weeks ago as well, which is quite good. I had a lot of people add me. It was kind of weird. Anyone <laughs> anyone who trolls through past episodes of FinTech Insider and adds David on every channel that he's given out <laughs> will shoot you a, few, a free t-shirt. Like, no doubt, I'm playing PUBG now with a lot of people. I've no idea who they are. It's weird. So. Come on, the digital age. That's what it's all about. I love that. And as for me, you can get me at ross gallagher 07 on twitter or shoot me an email rosga at 11fs.com as always if you like what you've heard this week come and talk to us at fintech insiders on twitter or podcasts at 11fs.com if you want to send us an email don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode and please leave us a review on itunes thanks for listening goodbye goodbye